Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Phil Halton. Phil is the Operations Director at Danny W. Pool & Sons, a haulage business based in Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire. Phil, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Yeah, thanks very much, and thanks for uh, having me on. It's a real pleasure, Phil. Um, the purpose of this discussion, of course, is to understand your take on leadership, and I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that leadership as a whole is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the COVID-19 pandemic, no less, and different business leaders, governments having to feel their way through what's ultimately an unprecedented crisis. Uh, we'll get onto that a little bit in a little bit more detail later on, Phil, of course. But if we start the discussion from looking at the word leader to begin with i'd like to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates do you know it's it's quite uh, funny because i have started to question uh, what's leadership quite recently with with everything that's going on you know you, you, i suppose a historic view of it was you know uh, you look at these guys who uh, have led men into battle and you think that well, they're the great leaders uh, you know churchill and, and people like that and when you bring it down to a business point of view, I start to look at it with how we develop people, how we bring people into the business, how we set people up to work with us in, in a business, and um, how we progress the business through development and leading people in such a way that actually these people are now willing to do the work and they're trained to do the work that we want them to do. Uh, you know, there's, there's motivational, uh, there's training, there's all sorts of things that actually um, bring people together um, that are able to do the jobs that we want them to do and are able, we're able to lead them in such a way that actually everybody's driving in the same direction. There's, I think being having the goal that everybody's um, on board with, everybody's uh, knows, and we're, we're all heading in the direction. Uh, that's one of the fundamentals. And having people that can motivate people and uh, bring them along on that journey towards that goal, um, I think that's a, a good starting point for leadership. And there are a couple of important things to take away from that in the sense that when you're taking people with you, hugely important in leadership, there's an element of real people management skills there, isn't there, in the sense that um, you're looking to be able to motivate people. Um, you're looking to obviously understand what sort of leadership approach works to motivate certain personalities because you're going to be working with a group of very, very different people. No one approach necessarily works as a blanket approach for everybody. And that especially is relevant in the context of these current times as well, when people are looking to leaders for reassurance and people are going to respond to crises in very, very different ways. No, absolutely. Um, that, you're right. There, there isn't um, there isn't one thing that suits everybody. Um, you know, we, as individuals, we'll want different things. You know, we react in different ways to uh, different situations. You know, some people will suffer with um, stress and anxiety. And how can we help these people to develop in our our business to make them? You know that the ideal person, that ideal employee. You know, and we can help people with that, but you've got to do that on an individual basis. And uh, certainly here at DWP, we have quite a few different characters, and um, we've helped them in many, many ways. 
Uh, If I can give you an example, there's one of our uh, employees that suffers quite badly with anxiety. And um, we've managed to um, get this guy to uh, work and operate on his own, in his own environment, just through training and and development and uh, talking to the guy, reassurance. So we brought this guy from, well, let's say we brought him out of his shell. He's now become a really good, strong team member. But that that same approach, we couldn't have done with everybody, but we can do it for the individuals. And the training thing that you mentioned there, uh, Phil, is incredibly important, isn't it? Because it's important to remember, even when we're in leadership positions, that we're never a finished article. It's a constant process of training and development. And during that journey, we may also have one or two setbacks, maybe make a couple of mistakes. And as leaders, it's also about making sure people don't shy away from failure, isn't it? Because that's ultimately how we learn. It's part of that process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, I'd love to say to you that I've never made any mistakes, uh, uh, you know, and every decision I've made has um, always been right. But, uh, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you that's not true. You know, um, I think sometimes um, you've got to take your best guess, certainly in the early days of this pandemic that we're going through at the moment. Mm. uh, You know, we've got to... I'm not saying take a wild guess, but an educated guess on which way things were going to go. The first and primary concern for us all was just to keep everybody safe. So, we, you know, how did we do that? You know, how do we, we make sure that our guys are safe while they're out on the road? How do we make sure that our employees in the office are safe? Um, you know, it was some real tough times there. But um, we, we made some decisions based on uh, certainly uh, the government's guidelines and information, um, and we made some decisions of our own here, how to furlough people, how to reduce the numbers that we got. But, you know, did we get it right? Now, that's going to be the burning question. And I'm not sure that we'll have the answer to that for, well, certainly for the rest of this year. Um, I think that we certainly got it right from a, uh, a personal safety point of view because we've, we've not had uh, one case of uh, COVID-19 within the business. So from that point of view, I think we got it right there. But, you know, it, it could have been anything. You know, the decisions that we, we took were based on, on you know, good information that we'd got. And had that not been there, it could have been quite, well, it could have been uh, easily the, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, the reverse outcome. We could have all ended up in a bad place. Mm, that ex- exactly that certainly could have been um what happened um unfortunately that's not proven to be the case um in terms of the response that the business has put in to the uh, the pandemic situation phil how have the staff actually taken to that um the reason i asked that question is because we've heard so many fantastic stories during this uh, pandemic period of how people have really gone above and beyond and adapted well to this whether that's included adapting to remote working or whether they've had to continue working on sites with new safety procedures in place how has that sort of been for yourself have you been encouraged by what you've seen from those around you do you know what? I mean, let's make no mistake about it. We are living in unprecedented times, mm. and this is, you know, unheard of. This is absolutely brand new for us all, um, and it was quite worrying. Uh, that makes it sound quite mild. It was very worrying, and um, we, I think we've got a really good team here that we're all prepared to jump in and do their best, go the extra mile. Certainly, uh, we move uh, uh, food, both 
were frozen and chilled. So it's important for us as a business to keep going. So we're delivering food to all of the RDCs and we're collecting it from abroad. So keeping that food chain going was vital for us. And uh, we've got uh, drivers here that were prepared to um, sit with us and, uh, you know, go that extra mile and make sure that the food was still continuing to move. We furloughed um, a fair number. I think it was about 70% that we furloughed of drivers mm. uh, to reduce the numbers down because obviously the work started to fall away. So we reduced the numbers of drivers, but the drivers that stayed with us were absolutely awesome. Uh, we gave them as much protective equipment as we could, kept them going. Uh, we got uh, hand sanitizers, masks, gloves, that sort of thing. Um, and then in the office, uh, we very quickly moved um, people out of the office so we, we could all distance, socially distance. And we've got people working from home. Um, I mean, our admin staff and a payroll uh, work from home. They, they've not missed a beat. Um, yeah, okay, it took us a couple of days to set everybody up. But you know what? It was seamless. Um, we got everybody working from home. We were communicating via uh, a telephone and email. And we even started doing some video calls. So, um, you know, from a business that was uh, going to start struggling the same as us, uh, as every other business, um, we really did manage to, to pull this one out of the bag. And even as simple as the remote video calling thing as well, Phil, that's an example of leadership in the sense that it's keeping the communication channels open for those that aren't maybe in the business day to day anymore and are on furlough that need to be kept up to date with what's going on. And I can imagine, of course, there's been some pressure from a leadership perspective to just keep the channels open for those people to just get reassurance into their minds as well. You know something, I, I, it really is vital, I think, that uh, video calling is there. Um, uh, it, it's daft when you think, well, uh, yeah, I spoke to you today. Mm. But when you're stuck at home and, um, you know, you've got nobody there to talk to and, you, you know, open the screen, just tapping away at email, it's quite a lonely place. Whereas if somebody just takes five minutes out of the day for a video call just to say, right, okay, how are you doing? Is everything okay? Do you need anything? You know, it's such a difference. I, mean, I, I feel it's... Um, no, is it too strong to say a lifeline for some people? Maybe not. No. You know, it's it's uh, yeah. Look, when you're all alone and you're in a quiet house, you're typing away, you're trying to do the best you can, and you can't get out. Um, you know, to have a friendly face, uh, just basically ask how you're doing, making make sure that you're okay. Um, it means a lot, and it means a lot to the people that are struggling. And and there are people that are struggling out there, some more than others. And if you can take that time, um, you know, we've we've done some um, conference calls where we've all been on that together. You know, five minutes to lighten the mood. Um, yeah, it certainly makes a difference. Mm. I think that's exactly right, uh, Phil. Um, I completely agree with you uh, from that point of view. Um, we talked already about, about the fact that um, DWP as a business has really stuck to government guidelines throughout this. And there's been a great deal of debate about the, uh, the government's leadership through the pandemic, not just from the timing of the lockdown, but right the way through to clarity and transparency of guidelines. Um, in your case, are you satisfied that you've known throughout what was expected of you and you continue to know what's expected of you as we move toward the new normal as things begin to to reopen further? No, I don't um, 
I don't actually think I can criticise the government in any way here. You know, they have given us an abundance of information. Um, the, the guidelines were clear for everybody. You know, it was so simple to follow for us. Um, actually, getting hold of PP wasn't that easy, but uh, you can't blame the government for that. Um, I think they did a really good job. I'm really impressed with you know, based on something that is so many unknowns, to actually, you know, come out and, and give clarity to everybody. I thought they did a superb job, um, you know, and, and all credit to them. All credit to them. And thinking a little bit about the future and the new normal now, Phil, before we do wrap things up on the programme today, um, do give me an idea of what you envision the next sort of 12 to 18 months holding for yourself and for DWP as a business and what you hope to achieve as we hopefully move through the pandemic and emerge from the other side and really look to the long-term future. Well, I think um, certainly uh, let's start from from where we are today. We're still at two metres social distancing. Mm. So, uh, certainly, some businesses are going to struggle to comply. Um, so they they will struggle themselves to you know really get the the business switched back on again. It's not like a light switch where uh, you know you can flick the switch and the lights come on immediately. This is going to take time to come back in. Um, certainly, the supply chain will need time to catch up as well. Um, so yeah, two meters at the moment, okay. When that's reduced to a metre, I think certainly that'll have a, a bigger impact and we will start to see things moving uh, more quickly. But I don't think we will see that metre reduced any further for mm-hmm. certainly the rest of the year. Now, um, at a metre, I think that's quite workable for most people. Um, you know, I mean, when you think about your own personal space anyway, it's probably about a metre. So we're coming down to some region of normality then. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, once that meter comes into play, um, everybody else can switch back on, as it were, and we can start to see, you know, the shoots of reality coming back in. I don't think, though, that um, um, any other normal than the new normal we'll see for the rest of the year. This is going to be with us for the rest of the year, at least. Now, that's fine. Because, you know, one metre social distance, I think we can all cope with that. We can all, all work that early. But then we, as soon as we're at that point, businesses are switched back on and people start to um, purchase in the same way as they used to. And they're going out for meals uh, and the pubs come back into life. We'll start to see everything else coming back in. The, um, the supply chain will pick up again and start reacting as it used to before. So we'll, we'll see purchasing going up again. Um, I think certainly uh, later on this year, um, you know, October maybe, uh, we'll see some real, real growth again. Um, yeah, I think that's where we're going to be. Later this year, mm. uh, certainly early part of next year, we'll, we'll start to come back. The other thing is as well, perhaps just jumping ahead here, but you know, uh, people are talking about recession. Mm. Um, and, yeah, we, you know, yeah. Because we've lost so much in the, um, the early part of the year. But the positives to come out of this are, you know, we've had people sitting at home. Uh, as soon as people are back in and, and the industry starts again, all this will start picking back up. I don't think we're going to be, you know, back at full speed next week, but it won't take long. People need to look at this as, uh, you know, a positive thing. We're going to get back into it and people will start um, purchasing as normal. 
Mm. Let's certainly hope that that happens sooner rather than later, uh, Phil, for certain. And um, the interesting thing as well is that um, there's more and more pressure being applied to the government over the uh, the two metre social distancing rule as well. Um, Sir Ian Duncan Smith and Damien Green are among its most prominent critics within the uh, the Commons, of course. And yeah. it's already the case that that has been reduced to one metre in the likes of Denmark and Singapore and that's actually in line with World Health Organisation guidelines as well so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that to allow industry to reopen because the belief is that it is going to hamper the economic recovery as long as it's in place and you know Phil um, I think um, given how informative it's been discussing these issues um, on the air with you this morning it would actually be really useful to in the next few months have you back on the programme with us to just see what has changed in that time and hopefully have some good news to report um, about the industry and the business as a whole. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. I'd love to come back. Yeah, I think that'll yeah, I mean, be I'll, a real pleasure. I'll, yeah, I'd like to come back and um, be able to say to you that uh, you know we've gone through it and we've come out the other side and we are making good progress. That'd be just a fantastic thing to say. Yeah, and let's really hope that that's going to be the uh, the prognosis for sure. Um, for now, Phil, I've got to say it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme uh, with us and thank you again uh, for the time taken to join. And most importantly, in the meantime, until we do touch base again in future, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. Absolutely. Thanks very much and stay safe as well. That was Phil Hulton speaking, Operations Director at DWP and Sons. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, but most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now and I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff that is coming up next uh, we're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final Sir Jeff Hurst uh, thank you very much for coming on today uh, you're welcome you're welcome good afternoon uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times but when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where... Um, so Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was 
simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach, as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager obviously like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. And what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence. On me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he 
it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at times you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be, who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before I was I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, Jeff, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out 
the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we have some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It it's too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did. Uh, um, it did make again, me laugh. If you, that put, day. if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you were a young man when this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, 
people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I think probably it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave. And set examples on and off the pitches. People must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact. on younger players coming in into the team laterally, um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you? as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding, I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is, is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to... Uh, Acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence, these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even. Uh, certainly as a team, if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the, 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they they are not doing so well he's the best example of management I've seen we've seen we've probably ever seen and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again it's absolutely astonishing astonishing and do you think could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Green was, yeah, well, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back 
through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were I was very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier, earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good, good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. It, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't, and, when, it, when you put those, those questions and how you categorize those, I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. Showed. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, Thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's. You're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. 
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.